0: Socio political issues, one man searches for intelligent conversation from Dedham, Massachusetts, the birthplace of modern democracy. This is You Don't Have to Yell
1: with your host, Dan Sally. Welcome to the home for the politically homeless, the podcast. For those of you who like your politics in colors other than red and blue, if you are new here, Welcome, and if you like what you hear today, please share this podcast with one friend, just one you think might like it too. And if you're a break the rules kind of person, share it with two. Now, towards the end of the last season, we were exploring the link between economic prosperity and democracy and asking the question, which came first? Does democracy make us more prosperous or does prosperity Make democracy more attractive. And some earlier episodes gave us some clues. In the May 19th episode with Carrie King, we learned how the transition over to petroleum around World War II led to an explosion in crop yields, population, and democratic reforms worldwide. And in the following episode, Andre Sherbach shared research that showed an increase in the level of animal proteins in a nation's diet was a predictor of democratic reforms, and a decrease in the quality of diet was actually a predictor of democratic backsliding. And so the big question here is, would democracy survive if there were a substantial disruption in the supply of fossil fuels and or food like I don't know if a country that supplies the petroleum-based fertilizers that feed 50% of the world invaded a country that provides over 10% of the world's grain. That is happening now if you didn't pick that up. So to answer this question, I went all the way back to the Industrial Revolution when we first started using coal to power machines and when the institution of slavery was being dismantled. And I wanted to understand the impact machine-based labor had on the economics behind slavery and whether a case could be made that the world didn't just grow a conscience in so much as it found a less brutal way to achieve the same economic results. And in this episode, I speak with Christopher Brown, professor of history at Columbia University, whose work focuses on the history of slavery and abolitionism in the British Empire and American colonies. And in this conversation, we discuss the origins of the abolitionist movement, the forces that gave it momentum, and what this tells us about the link between economics and the willingness of those in power to expand the rights of those without. Despite this being an ugly part of our history, I was relieved to find out that the link between economics and liberty was relatively weak, for reasons that'll make sense as we get into the episode, And I was also relieved I still had many reasons to remain somewhat cynical for reasons that will also make sense as we get into the episode. I will be back at the end with my final thoughts. Before we get into the subject, I wanted to reference a quote from a talk you gave that I found really interesting, and I wrote it down verbatim. I actually listened to it over again so I could get it right. And what you said was, what we know about any subject is a reflection of what people have learned about it before. And history is not a fixed thing. It's constantly evolving. And could you expound on that? Because I feel like that's going to come into play as we start getting into this conversation.
0: Yeah, gladly, gladly. So there's sometimes this notion that you either know your history or you don't, that it's a thing that you can sort of look up and master, that there's content to control. And the real expert in history is one who can deploy the most information. And that is true for one aspect of what historians do and what historical thinking is. Um, But just about any subject is, like any body of knowledge, constantly evolving. I mean, I'm going to give you one very concrete example that I think makes this very clear. 50 years ago, scholars had no idea how many African men, women, and children were transported to the Americas in the the Atlantic slave trade. I mean, they had no idea. Um, And there were guesses that went from 20 million to 2 million to 120 million. They had no idea. Now, after 50 years of research, we know a great deal about that subject by how many people likely work. And the research goes on. So every five, 10 years, 20 years from now, we will know more about that subject than we do at the moment. And you can do this with any historian that there's a discovery of new information. Sometimes new questions are asked, new perspectives are brought to subjects. So I mean, it's one of the exciting things about being a historian is that even for the things that you think you know well, you know, a colleague will do some work and the next thing you know, you're thinking about the subject differently.
1: That's and and I think and also my dog is going to make a cameo on this episode. I I'm love
0: dogs. Oh, good,
1: good. I'm glad. Well, you'll 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 get your your fill here. No, it, and I think why I found that quote so interesting, especially in the context of this subject, yeah. is yeah. one of the things you talk about a lot is the role of of national myth or national yeah. identity. And I feel yeah. like a lot of the times the stories we tell about ourselves in history are the result of this myth. And yep. so any change in history ultimately challenges that. And I think, we, I think we see that today in the United States. And if we, you know, if we keep the subject on slavery, for Pretty example, sure. with the Confederate monuments, right. I, th- I think there's, a, there, there, there's again that question of, of what does that mean? What does that signify? I think before we get into the abolitionist movement, it's, it's probably worth discussing the origins of the transatlantic slave trade. And if you don't mind, could you tell me how it began and and why? Yeah,
0: so the Atlantic slave trade develops not long after the Colombian voyages, the end of the 15th century. I mean, there are actually African slaves on those initial Spanish crossings to what we now know as the Americas. So the Atlantic slave trade is there really right from the beginning, you know, certainly a century and a half before the British start settling North America. But the slave trade is even older than that. And I think this is something that, you know, those new to the subject, it's, it's, it's worth appreciating people had been exporting captives out of Africa to the Mediterranean basin, to Spain and Portugal as early as the 12th, 13th, 14th century. The trade in African bodies was actually pretty ancient by the time that Europeans start traveling to the Americas. And it was a part of the other trans-Saharan trades. There was nothing especially unusual or strange about it. Basically, the way the world thought about captives was that those who were taken prisoner in a war that could be described as just, either for holy reasons or for reasons of, you know, natural justice conquest, those people had, you know, were legitimate slaves. They had the the captors had a, had the grounds, legal grounds, moral grounds to enslave them, and this has been going on, in what we think of as the old world for centuries. And so the Atlantic slave trade is really, in some ways, an extension and then an expansion of that practice that had been going on in the old, you know, hundreds of years before Europe starts traveling to the Americas.
1: Mm. And so, really, then there was no. Moral case that needed to be made to no, just
0: kind of it was already happening. It's just there was a new destination and then new technology with ocean going ships and then new demands in the Americas for captive labor. But slave trading itself, as far as we know, goes back at least to the height of the Roman Empire, you know, the time when you know most of the captives were not sub Saharan Africans, they came from what we think of as today as Russia or England or. Spain or Egypt, I mean captives came from everywhere into the Roman Empire, so yeah. you know long distance trading in captives is really as ancient as civilization itself, at least in the Western world. You know the opening of the Americas creates a whole new set of traffics with new imperatives and new opportunities but but slave trading itself is not new at all
1: w- one of the things i I discussed in an episode way back, and this was more on religion, was how if you go into the Bible there's there are actually a ton of passages justifying yeah. slavery and effectively saying yeah. the principles under which you can own slaves. So I could understand why this wouldn't conflict with, you know, with your 15th century, 16th century. It, wouldn't have,
0: to be, it wouldn't have to be justified because no one knew a world in which slavery didn't exist. Mm. Right. We, we live in a world that's created by the abolitionist consensus of the 18th and 19th century. That slavery is immoral, unjust, and you know, there's no place in the world today that openly celebrates, legitimates, authorizes mm-hmm. enslavement. Yeah. That's one of the biggest changes in the last two and a half centuries. But before then, you know, systems of enslavement were pretty common. You know, they were more common in some places than others. And the question of who could be enslaved and who could not be enslaved, there was a great deal of debate about that. But the practice of slavery itself, there was nothing
1: especially controversial. Mm. And so when did it start to become a problem? Yeah, it's interesting. Yeah. So
0: I've always thought that the deep, deep history to slavery as a problem in the Americas has to do with the way that it got narrowed to a very specific racial grounding. It really matters, I think, that the way slavery operated, what I'm referring to as the old world, meaning Europe and and Africa, didn't have a racial basis. Mm -hmm. People who got enslaved were sometimes racialized because they were dehumanized and all of that, but it wasn't the notion that some people are inherently born for slavery and some are not. Mm -hmm. And because in the Americas, it came to really focus on Africans it puts special pressure on creating the idea that Africans are really different. And rather than enslavement, just being the kind of misfortune, bad luck of being on the wrong side of power relationships. And I really think that that attempt to naturalize an entire group of people, which is not really but groups, people who all look in some artificial way the same, really put pressure on justifying why those people and why not other people. So in a deep sense, I actually think the racialization of slavery becomes, in some ways, it's undoing. Uh, but more you know, immediately, there's discomfort with the kind of wealth and the concentrations of wealth that slavery creates in some quarters. Slavery is enormously profitable in some places. Many slaveholders, especially in the British world, are famously uninterested in converting their captives to Christianity. And so those who are Ardent believers start really thinking, this is something wrong with this institution if it's if it's preventing the spread of the faith. And there are humane responses by select individuals for sure. And there's also an awareness that slavery is dangerous because people who are enslaved don't want to be enslaved mm-hmm. and re- keeping them in slavery requires an enormous amount of violence. And in some places where the proportion of enslaved people is greater than the number of free people, there are folks who are neither slaves nor slaveholders who, re- who find themselves living in a society that is rife with violence that seems like a very dangerous place to be in. Mm. So, I mean, there's a lot of different sources for the discomfort. It doesn't take a great deal of moral insight to see why slavery in the abstract is problematic, is questionable. It's some of these more practical, social, you know, uh, political, s- s- cultural concerns religious concerns that create a kind of a constituency, especially in the British colonies for, I'm not sure that this is the world that I want to live in.
1: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So it sounds like there's no one school of thought there.
0: No, it's not one school. It's not one school of thought. It's not one school of thought. People have lots of, you know, and again, I want to emphasize people who are enslaved are against slavery from top to bottom. So Mm -hmm. we're not talking about people who, Talking about people who are neither slaveholders nor slaves, who are unhappy for one reason or another with living in a society where slavery is is prevalent, is, is fundamental to the world. And those people have those reactions for a variety of different reasons.
1: And so what are some examples? Like, where do you see that group of people? So the folks who aren't slaveholders and aren't slaves? Yeah, I mean,
0: most, most famously, Dan, it's Quakers. And again, you know, Quakers are come down to us both in their myth and in their history as the progenitors of anti-slavery, as the kind of the spearhead for the movement. And that's correct. But that doesn't mean there weren't Quakers who were slaveholders and slave traders and they you know, it's the first half century of Quaker settlement in the Americas. They're doing what their neighbors are doing. There's a lot of reason why the movement develops within the Society of Friends, but really crucial reasons or things that I've already mentioned. One, a slight ambivalence about wealth and the ways that great wealth seems to corrupt morals. Mm -hmm. Uh, A peace witness. It's very hard to be committed to peace with an institution which is by definition depends on regular interpersonal violence. And so that troubles many Quakers. You know, and Quaker religion is famously somewhat open to dissent because there's no formal church. There are no formal ministers. There's no set theology. So it's a it's a, it's a religious fellowship of conversation and, and evolving moral insight. So it's easier in some ways for for challenges to the existing order, even within the society of friends, to emerge.
1: In, that's interesting. That's interesting. So it, was it? You know what? I'm not going to go too off in a tangent there because I feel like we're going to. I, I could spend a ton of time. Don't get me
0: started about Quakers. I could talk with you, but I could talk
1: Quaker to you all day long. Let's, you know what? Let's, let's dig into the Quakers a little bit then. Cause, cause I'm I'm curious, like you now I, and I'm, I'm going to confess I'm a, I'm fairly ignorant of Quakers other than that they exist and that Richard Nixon no, was fine. one. Okay, that's good. Shame, yeah. but, so I'm I'm among the majority was I, I, cause what really interests me is that whole idea of, of, of free flowing debate and, yeah is that something unique to the Quakers? So if we look at the world at the time, is that something unique to them?
0: Yeah, so what's different about Quakers is that they don't have, even in the 17th and 18th century, they don't really have an established clergy as such, Mm -hmm. nor do they really have a body of doctrine. Their doctrines are their practices. Silent Mm -hmm. meeting, the notion that there is the light of God in everyone and anyone, so anyone can speak to the voice of God because they have anyone has access to it. You know, Quakers are highly unusual having religious leaders who are women because the notion that men have more moral insight or more religious insight than women do is you know, is not part of the Quaker way of viewing of things. So, you know, I mean there are a number of really famous, well, not famous to me, maybe not famous to everybody, but yeah. important heretics within the Quaker tradition that who you know, make a real stand. I mean, they also were people who are, you know, very early vegetarians who pushed the peace witness further than, you know, so they won't wear animal hides, you know, the only made things that are made out of non-animal products. I mean, all this is sort of stuff that's being discussed in the 17th, 18th century. And, you know, in many societies, you can shut down cranks and heretics and people with odd ideas by throwing them out. Mm -hmm. And it's hard to do that within the Society of Friends because of their openness in some ways to the notion that moral insight can come from anywhere. And that's not to say there wasn't a very powerful majority that discouraged these kinds of thoughts. But there's a kind of internal questioning. And I know we're going to be talking about national identity. You asked about that. But there is within the Society of Friends a kind of question about the identity of the religious fellowship and a continuing sort of questioning of each other Around whether slaveholding is consistent with the values of the religious fellowship, regardless of what's going on in the outside world. Yeah. So it's really as much about an internal debate that they're having among themselves before they bring it out into the broader into the broader world.
1: What, what I find really interesting about this is is so years ago, I was learning uh, Brazilian Portuguese and started to learn a lot about the country and and the culture and the history and the way they're structured today. And Brazil, had, from a racial standpoint has a very similar history as ours and the the key difference i find between the two societies is that in the united states there was certainly look the the southern colonies were certainly slave states and they operated very much like the brazilian economy did as you go further north there's sort of almost this messianic mission so if you look at the Mass Bay Colony founded by Puritans, uh, you know you look yeah. at Quakers in Pennsylvania and so on, and, and it and it seems to me that it's that 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 religious mission, you know, the folks yeah. who came here not to extract from the land but really to pursue this religious mission that 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 changed the culture of America and 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 maybe if I'm hearing you right, laid the groundwork for, yeah, laid I mean, the groundwork right. for abolitionism.
0: I think there's something to that. I mean, certainly slaveholders thought that abolitionism resented sort of religious fanaticism in new clothes. And they often said uh, as much. I mean, it's important to know that there was slaveholding in Massachusetts and New York and Pennsylvania. There were Puritan and Quaker slaveholders as well. I mean, one of the biggest differences is that slavery didn't pay. It wasn't as profitable in the New Mm -hmm. England, in the Mid-Atlantic colonies because of the nature of those economies. So, But it is true that there is a culture of religious witness and the culture of a kind of a evangelical reform, frankly, is powerful in New England and powerful in some quarters within the Middle Colonies. It's a kind of form of not quite evangelicalism, but spiritual revival within the Society of Friends. And that's a part of where anti-slavery comes from I mean, i think it's it's you know historians are all, are all about complicating things i would never say that it's or even maybe even principally religious but the, the, that sort of sense of religious commitment is is a very much an important part of it, it
1: yeah because it, it does seem too that the abolitionist movement kind of there were kind of two schools of thought moving at the same time and there was this moral argument we talk about but then there was also this economic argument, which I wasn't aware yeah. of until I came into yeah. your work that was really uh, was was part of that movement as well. Um, which came first and and where did they originate? Was it happening on both sides of the Atlantic at the same time or was it exported yeah, from the Yeah, I, I
0: would not say, there are not really important initiators of anti-slavery that come for economic reasons. Okay, I mean, what happens more is that People who are committed to abolishing slavery or abolishing the slave start battening on to economic ideas or economic arguments that they think will help them make their case. Mm -hmm. So because they recognize that, you know, personal economic interests, commercial interests, business interests, and then collective economic interests are a major barrier to change. And so they realize that they're going to take it on in a real way, as opposed to just expressing moral witness. They're going to have to um, find some arguments that meet the defenders of the established order on their own ground but there are but there are different ideas of what we might call today economic development and not everybody's happy with the plantation complex with the you know the focus on you know the production of a single crop and the channeling the monopolizing of the commercial um, and financial investments in that particular thing and the way that it crowds out other kinds of Economic development. So there are there are those who have ideas about the way the British colonies or the Atlantic trades might evolve that would reduce, minimize, diminish the role of slave trading and slave holding because they think it would be more profitable to do so. But nobody pays much attention to those people um, who make those arguments. The The ones who pay attention to them are the abolitionists who start saying, "Hey." Maybe we can use these ideas to help make our case. But it it is a principally, it is a principally a response to the dislikable aspects of slavery and the slave trade, which account for abolitionism rather than, you know, some sort of economic interest in a narrow sense anyway.
1: As I was learning that part of history, the parallel I drew was with the healthcare debate today, because if you look... There are lots of economic reasons for universal health care. Great example being, you know, people with chronic conditions who get preventive care are cheaper to treat than people who go to the emergency room for the, those conditions spiraling out of control. On the same token, what's ultimately driving those arguments isn't necessarily a concern with the economics of health care, but rather yeah. with the moral aspect of people going without it. The now, is it fair to say then that the, the, that that the American Revolution provides the 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 real maybe moral or ideological momentum behind Yeah, the, I you, mean, Yeah, so this is, you know, what you might say one of my big
0: ideas and, you know, it's something that I've I've given a lot of thought to. Um, and I think it's really important to understand especially as we come up to the 250th anniversary of you know, our nation's independence. You know, we, we we think about the American Revolution often as sort of expanding the dominion of liberty, right, of a new democratic, a nation that becomes a, a republic, a democracy, frees itself from empire, articulates, and then tries to implement a notion of rights granted in, grounded in natural human rights rather than historic traditional rights that come out of particular political order, all these things that are familiar to us. And sometimes the the suggestion is made that the consequence of those ideas is to create an awareness um, of slavery as a problem and to, and to generate anti-slavery enthusiasms, right? It's kind of a logic of natural rights to rights for slaves, to anti-slavery, to emancipation. Mm -hmm. And And I, and I, there's something to that, but I think what's even more important in some ways is the way that, slavery becomes shameful in the revolutionary era. Being being invested in the institution becomes a way for political opponents, political enemies to undermine the moral standing mm-hmm. of those they don't like, right? So you have this sort of debate emerging of people in Britain mm-hmm. who think the American Rebellion is a rebellion without morals, without principles, without purpose. Saying if these people were really sincere about what they thought, they wouldn't be slaveholders. Mm -hmm. And then Americans turning it around and saying. This nation of slave traders, most of the slave trade is operated by by British merchants. Here's another reason why we have to get our independence. And on both sides, neither of them are actually really interested in the question of slavery. Mm -hmm they're interested in destroying the reputation of their opponents. But well, what that ends up doing is it creates slavery as a standard by which to measure someone's political sincerity and moral integrity. So if you think about the way we are today, where there's a kind of association of, oh, that university has connections to slavery, that bank has associations to slavery, America has built all of that sort of language of we've discovered something important by discovering connections to slavery, and that something important is something that we should be embarrassed about or ashamed of, that's directly a consequence of the American Revolution. When we're doing that, we are in fact reenacting the debates that took place in the revolutionary era. Anti-slavery is as much about dealing with the recognition that there's something shameful about being committed to slavery, as it is about a certain kind of humanitarian concern for Africans.
1: So in the, you know, because in the beginning, it sounds like the debate was really more a way to shame the other person than it was to clean up their side of the street, so to speak. Correct. So when does the movement start to become more about who they are, or more about, for example, yeah. Britain cleaning up Britain.
0: Right. So I think what's interesting about this, Dan, is that there are individuals who become essentially moral and political entrepreneurs who take advantage of this back and forth, this culture of accusation and recrimination and self defense to sort of say, hey, we can say something important about ourselves by taking a stand and taking a stance that others won't do. And this happens in some of the northern and middle Atlantic states, in the United States, you know, and it's in the period of the American Revolution and immediately after that the first you know, anti-slavery societies in North America created, Pennsylvania most famously. Um, But it develops even more in Britain nationally, and there's no question that it develops in reaction to the way that the new American Republic presents itself, describes itself as a beacon of liberty, as demonstrating a new set of political and moral virtues that the world had not seen. And Britain, having been on the losing side of that battle, there are individuals who say, hey, we can, as a nation, we look look rather different if we challenge this institution that no one else will challenge.
1: Mm. And
0: so, it's 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 a it's a small group of people who see an opportunity. People who had already who had always been, you know, uncomfortable with slavery and the slave trade, not been invested in, but they see a way to to take that old concern and make it a part of a political mission. That can redeem the reputation of the nation. And that's possible in Britain because there's no slaveholding majority. There are no, no, basically no slaves in England. Slavery exists in the empire, and slaveholders themselves are in a minority, a powerful minority, but in a minority. So espousing anti slavery in Britain is not divisive in the way that it is in the United States, where quite literally from the very beginning, it's clear that it can just wreck the nation. In Britain, it can be a unifying you know, cause, which is, in fact, what it ends up becoming.
1: Is it, is it fair to say almost that the national identity of Britain was really shaken or wounded by the no American question. Revolution? Yeah, and these people no just question. kind of stepped into the void. Is that...
0: Yeah, no question. No question. I mean, they, they, exactly. They, they, they seized on a moment where there was considerable searching among the British elite about what the loss of the 13 colonies said about Britain and what it meant for the empire. And they offered a, a way to think about and, and, and something to do in response to that loss. You know, it was a great surprise for the 13 colonies to unite and rebel. It was a great surprise to Britain to lose the war. It was a great surprise that the New Republic hung together. I mean, there were a lot of observers in Britain who said some version of just give them five or six years that they're all going to, like, tear each other apart and they'll be, you know, I don't know if they'll come, come, you know, coming back to us, but they certainly are not going to be able to sustain this experiment once they don't have Britain to kick around anymore. So. You know, I mean, the whole thing, it's hard to recreate in our minds just how surprising the whole thing was. And it's in that moment of reckoning with American independence, there are groups of individuals who say, we can use this moment to redefine what virtue, what patriotism, what national identity looks like.
1: Mm. And now you had mentioned that there weren't any slaveholders in Britain but there were in the in the empire itself, and there were some very powerful interests in in Britain that yeah. are slave owning interests. So, how did they, how did Britain unwind that in the in the empire? Yeah, well, listen, it, it, you know,
0: it took twenty years
1: to get a consensus on
0: abolishing the slave trade, abolishing the British slave trade, mind you. So, you know, whether you think that's short or long depends on your expectations. It took another 30 years to abolish slavery itself. So from the moment that, you know, the sort of British movement crystallizes to actual emancipation, that's a 50 year period. So, you know, think about 50 years in our lives. That's actually a long that's a long time coming in many respects. Mm -hmm. Um, In Britain, unlike in America, the issue is always in one way or another, can we afford it? because slavery is understood to be a primary driver of economic strength and growth for the empire. So it also is enslaved men and women the personal property of very rich people.
1: Mm.
0: So even if you think that in the abstract, outlawing slavery is a good thing, What's going to happen to the people who own hundreds of men and women who have enormous amounts of wealth tied up in the ownership of it you know, is going to lose it all. It's going to, I mean, that's, it's, it's, a, it's a kind of. I sometimes say this to students. I mean, emancipation is a massive exercise in government appropriation. Mm. Right. I mean, emancipation from a slaveholder's point of view is taking other people's stuff. So, you know, it's, 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 it's a figuring out the logistics, the practical aspects of how abolition and then emancipation would work takes, you know, more than one generation to unwind. And that's where the economic arguments become so important, because mm-hmm. the principal barrier to slave trade abolition and emancipation in Britain is far more economic and political than it is moral or cultural.
1: You know, I I am curious and this is gonna this is gonna seem like a really callous thing to say in light of the subject matter, but was there a point where the economics started working? So did did we reach a point where either you know, I hate to I hate to put it that way, but yeah, is there yeah. a point where yeah, no, either technology yeah, listen, or whatever?
0: Yeah. Listen, I mean, yeah, I mean, listen, it's a slave trade abolition, when the British abolished the slave trade in eighteen oh seven, they do it in a moment where just about every other European power, with the exception of Portugal, has lost their North Atlantic trade during the Napoleonic Wars. One of the big sort of worries is that, well, if, if, within Parliament as well, if we abolish the, our trade, everybody else will just step into the breach. And there's this moment in the first decade of the 19th century where it looks like Britain is going to command the seas. And if they're not slave trading, at least in the North Atlantic, nobody will be. And so those sort of economic and even geostrategic anxieties are just not there. The Haitian revolution has a big piece of this too, although it take me too long to explain how i
1: here. No. Um, I've already dragged you into the Quakers, so I won't go yeah, you to no. so,
0: so, you know, but then, you know, one of the things that's kind of, I don't know, ironic about this is that, you know, slaveholders say throughout all of these debates that, Listen, free labor is not going to be profitable in the cultivation of sugar. Listen, if you emancipate all these Africans, they're not going to want to do the work that we want them to do. Hmm. All of your ideas about how slavery is economically regressive and inefficient and anachronistic and counterproductive, these are sorts of things that a political economists were in favor of, the kind of things that they would say. And the slave said, that's not, that's not how it's going to work. And, that, and, and the slaveholders were right. As soon as slavery was abolished, you know the the productivity of what had been, you know, the plantation colonies declines, you know, quite rapidly. So, you know, it's 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 pleasant it's pleasant to think that slavery was doomed because of its limits as an economic institution. But there's no question, at least in the British case, that the dooming that the ending of slavery brought an end to economic production in a really important way in what had been very profitable colonies.
1: Mm. It sounds to me that as the institution of slavery was being dismantled from an economic standpoint, if we take morals out of the equation, there was never a point where it made economic sense.
0: I think my own view, you know, having, you know, thought and read and taught about this for so many years, I think there's every reason to think that absent the pressure put on by slave trade, abolition, and then emancipation in a variety of different quarters, Mm -hmm. I don't think there's any reason slavery would not have thrived through the 19th century and deep into the 20th century. Mm -hmm. And one reason why I think we can say that with some certainty is, as we know, there are all kinds of slavery that takes place in the shadows, which is illicit, illegal, underground, And you can only imagine what would happen if it was actually legal to do so, if there were actually laws and the state supported it. And so I I, I really, um, you know, there are some economies, there are some, you know, modes of, of work and production for which slavery is more useful than others. But the notion that slavery would have just fallen because of economic progress, in my view, It's not necessarily the view of all historians, but in my view is wishful thinking.
1: That is so interesting because I feel like as as I've heard everything you said, the thing that I think stands out to me as so important to this issue is the idea of moral purpose and the idea that a group of people with moral purpose could ultimately end up thwarting economics to bring about a more just society. And yeah. it's very rare I finish an episode and I don't walk away more cynical than I was when I started it. But right. but but would you say when you look at it and when you look at how the abolitionist movement evolved and you look you look again how it challenged very powerful vested interests and ultimately won out, do you feel like as we look at some of the bigger problems we're facing today, do you feel like maybe there's reason to hope that those with moral purpose who take action can ultimately override these very powerful interests that are that are standing in front of us right now?
0: Yeah. It, it, so it, it happens. It happens, but it doesn't happen as often as it's, it's, it's actually somewhat unusual when that sense of we and we have a, we tend to refer to them as reckonings okay. in our sort of culture today. Right. Yeah. And I think it's important. Well, I think it's useful to notice the pattern. I want to be really clear about this. So too, it's, it's, you, you don't misunderstand whoever ends up listening or watching to this, watching this doesn't misunderstand. But when I say moral purpose, it's important to the purpose arises and serves often as much a kind of discomfort with what the subject says, what the issue says about how people feel about themselves individually and collectively. And, you know, think a little bit about the kinds of responses that happened to the sort of slow motion murder of George Floyd, right? With people watching the video and a lot of, you know, there are lots of different reactions, but one of the reactions is this is not who we are, right? And so there's an idea of who we're supposed to be. And then we're presented with something that doesn't meet with our idea of who we're supposed to be. I think one of the really brilliant aspects of the civil rights movement of the 1950s and 1960s was in some ways putting on display, putting on television, oh, wait, is that who we are? That's not who I want to be. I don't want to be part of those people who are letting dogs loose and shooting people with water cannons and beating people who are protesting peacefully. I don't know exactly what it is those people who are protesting want, but I'm not for that, right? And so there's a similar dynamic with anti-slavery. This is the reason why I think the history of anti-slavery is so important, is that a lot of the response, a lot of the desire is wanting to know things about oneself individually and collectively that meet up with your own self-image. Right. So in Britain, when, when the abolitionists start presenting, you know, a famous woodcut of what the slave ship looks like with 400 people on board, it's like, oh, my God. Right? That's a British ship. I don't want to have any part of that. I don't believe, I don't know what this is. But I, don't, I don't believe in that. Right. And so that sort of sense of is this who we are? Is this who we want to be? Is a very important motivator and feature of these kinds of campaigns. And one thing to notice about them is that they are concerned with the victims of the injustice. That's a part of it, and to, for different degrees to different people. But often they're as much concerned about what does it say about who we are, right? Mm-hmm. As much as I really want to see those people free, or mm-hmm. I really want to see those people to have the same educational opportunities and Job opportunities and housing opportunities. I really want to see, you know, substantial police reform. No, I just don't want that to happen. Yeah. Right? Because that doesn't that doesn't feel good to know that that I'm a part of this. And so when I say moral purpose, moral purpose does not necessarily mean concerned with what's happening to others. It is in many instances about a kind of discomfort that has to be among those in a position, in a more comfortable position, that needs to get worked out in some way so they don't have to be uncomfortable anymore. Mm. That's a very long answer.
1: It's a great answer. And, and I'm feeling comforted because you validated my cynicism just a little bit. So that's-, that's
0: if, you, if, you've come to, if you're looking for cynicism, you've come to the right place.
1: Great, I didn't want to walk away from this too too cheery. So. I hope you enjoyed this episode, and if you did, please consider leaving it a review. This podcast grows by word of mouth. You can also receive additional commentary on this episode and other issues of the day by signing up for YDHTY's email newsletter at ydhty.com slash news. I've also included a link to Chris's latest book in the show notes, so be sure to check that out. Now, a few things crystallized for me in this conversation. The first is that while the foundations of slavery were certainly economic, the foundations of abolitionism were exactly the opposite. Groups such as the Quakers who were more interested in spiritual rather than material growth were the ones who questioned the institution of slavery for the first time in human history. The second is that embarrassment is a much more powerful force than either morality or economics. It wasn't people realizing the immorality of slavery that led to its end, but the shame of being associated with such a brutal practice. And the third, and this is the most important as it's gonna lead into the subject of the next few episodes, is the role national identity and our shared national story play in how we pursue civil liberties. Abolitionism grew in Great Britain as they sought to reframe their national identity after losing a war to a bunch of angry farmers in America's colonies. It grew in America as slavery became more and more out of step with American notions of liberty and justice. And it clashed directly with people's visions of themselves and led to the end of an institution, despite making no sense economically. And as I listen to this conversation again, and simultaneously saw the response of both the left and the right to Governor Ron DeSantis' move to fly migrants to Martha's Vineyard, I couldn't help but see the same debate over national identity playing out right now. And so for the next few episodes, we're going to be exploring the state of affairs at America's border with Mexico, the history behind our border policy, and what this tells us about our national identity and our national story. And I know we've got listeners of all political stripes here, so I hope you're gonna stick with me through this journey because just like you, I am learning as I go here. As always, music courtesy of Quellertac, YDHTY's Director of Continuous Improvement is the admirable Admiral Adam Yaffe, YDHty is produced in loving memory of the Big Gino Jason Putney. Until the next, this is Dan Sally. Ooobaa oh, bye.